the first education textbook for kids printed in America was published in the year 1690. It was called the New England Primer, and it helped kids learn the alphabet by using rhymes. Uh, the American colonies, as we know, were inhabited by the Puritans, and so those Puritans filled that textbook with biblical imagery, quotes from scripture. The first rhyme was for the letter A, of course, and it was this, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. There was a foundational understanding of human nature after the fall as being depraved. Each person who is a child of Adam is alienated from God at birth. We are, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. This is the Christian doctrine called original sin. We understand the source of sin and evil in the world to erupt from humanity's fallen, corrupt nature. Well, that thought has sort of lost traction in America since 1690, as you might imagine. Today, it's much more common uh, to, to understand the source of evil as not being inside of humanity, but rather outside of humanity. That is to say, it comes to us from the outside, from society. That is the source of our trouble. Most folks think that we're basically good at birth, but then external forces come upon us. Society causes us to sin. We enter the world basically as blank slates, but because society is corrupt, we become corrupted in, in like fashion, which ironically, if we just read uh, Genesis 3 this morning, ironically, that seems to be the sort of blame-shifting argument that a child of Adam would come up with. It wasn't my fault. Society made me do it. One of the unifying themes of the book of Romans, as we've been going through this, is, is that of anthropology. There's the study of man. From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is laying out the absolutely desperate condition of all of humanity. It was all bad news. We're all in this problem of sin together. Both Jews and Greeks, everyone. Fallen humanity has been given over to degrading passions, Paul says. We've been given over to our own sin, filled with unrighteousness and evil. None is righteous, no, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. None seeks after God. And all store up wrath for themselves in the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What brought all of humanity to this lowly state? Well, this verse helps explain it. Adam's sin. So unless we begin with a very solid understanding of, of this, we are going to misunderstand or misappreciate, at the very least, the gospel. We won't understand any of the challenges that we, that we, that we face today, individually, in our own heart, or corporately, across society. There are very few errors, whether they're theological errors or sociological errors, philosophical errors, even political errors, that cannot be traced back to a wrong understanding of the corruption of human nature. I suggest that the big idea of this passage is that we're either dead in Adam or alive in Christ. We're either dead in Adam or alive in Christ. Now this is a tricky passage. One commentator said that this is one of the deepest, most profound theological passages in all of scripture. 
the nature of mankind's union with Adam and how his sin has transferred to the human race has always been the subject of, of, of intense debate. But this passage is not important because it's sort of interesting to try to figure out how to interpret it. It's not interesting because it's difficult to embrace. It's a challenge to us. This passage is important because being a child of Adam is a desperate condition to be in. Natural, spiritual, and eternal death await all those who belong to Adam. Death, of course, currently affects all of us, but eternal death awaits the children of Adam who have not been united by Christ, with Christ, by faith. Jesus is able to save any and all those who come to God through him, to take your sin, your death, upon himself, and then to exchange it for the free gift of righteousness that we read about in our text this morning, and eternal life, which comes with that free gift. Our only hope is in the one man, Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask for help to understand and embrace what God's word says to us this morning. Father, we do need your help. Uh, even as we consider the, the depth of our own depravity, we recognize that one of the effects of the fall has been on our minds. And we find it difficult to concentrate for long periods of time. Help us to focus this morning not just for the sake of receiving information, but even beyond that, to understand ourselves better, our own hearts, our own motives, to understand our need of being born again, the desperate condition in which we find ourselves, so that we can more fully appreciate the righteousness and the free gift that comes to us through faith in Christ. Do this for the glory of your name. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've only got two points. First point's got two subpoints. The first is this. In Adam's fall, we send all. You've heard that before somewhere. Verse 12 through 14a. We'll cover this. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So, first thing I want to notice from this particular passage is that Adam's first sin brought original sin. Adam's first sin brought original sin. So let's think about how Adam's sin led for sin for you and I. This is what the text is saying. How should we understand original sin? How does Adam's sin affect us? Well, Adam's first sin is, in some sense, the sin of all mankind. As a result, human nature is infected by the corruption of that sin. Let me say that again. Adam's first sin, in some sense, is the sin of all mankind. As a result, human nature is infected by the corruption of that sin. Note, what I'm trying to clarify in the subpoint is that Original sin doesn't refer to Adam's first sin. Adam's first sin brings about the condition that we refer to as original sin. The effects of his first sin on humanity is the concept of original sin. Original sin is the condition into which we are all born. And as I've said before, there are, very, there, there are many ways that this is interpreted and understood. Many ways we can understand this. 
But I want to start by giving you some wrong views. Maybe this will be helpful. These are options that are not on the table for us. First, let me give you two understandings of human nature and our relationship to Adam's fall that are way off base. So the first is that of a, a British monk from the fourth century who was named Pelagius. Now, Pelagius had a very creative and wrong way of understanding original sin. He just outright rejected it. He said original sin is not actually a thing. There is no such thing as original sin. Pelagius taught that Adam's sin has no impact on us aside from providing a bad example for us. Adam is a bad example and we sort of follow him, but we don't, we don't have to because we don't have a sinful nature. We are not by nature corrupted by original sin. Each of us is born with that same unfallen nature that Adam was created with. We have that sort of good nature that Adam had before the fall. So we can choose to sin or we can choose not to sin. We can choose to fully obey God's law if we simply try hard enough. Jesus came to give us a better example to follow. So this is how they understand the relationship between the first Adam and the second Adam. First Adam, bad example. Jesus, the second Adam, is a good example. Be like that one, not like that one. So Pelagius had a very legalistic understanding of Christianity, and he was very clearly wrong. Others, though, came along after Pelagius and sort of modified his teaching. They were the Neo-Pelagians, or, or what we refer to today as the Semi-Pelagians. Semi-Pelagians. This is the second view that's off base. They said, well, no, original sin is it's a thing. Adam's fall did truly affect us. It brought about physical death into the world, and it weakened our moral strength. But they agreed with Pelagius that there is no, there's no guilt or anything that is coming from Adam's sin that's actually passed down. Humanity, though, is just sort of morally sick. We are morally sick and have sort of an impure nature. Adam didn't pass on sin and guilt. He passed on a moral sickness. We are inclined towards evil, but we can choose to obey God's law in and of ourselves. And when we try as hard as we can, he graciously meets us in our weakness and assists us. It's like we heard Josh talk about last, last week, right? That God helps those who help themselves, which was Ben Franklin. It's not in the Bible. But you'll hear it very often today. Maybe you'll hear it something like this. When you do everything you can do, that's when God will step in and do what you can't do. Now, I've made this brief, but if you'd like to learn more about this, we just wrapped up this morning a five-week class on the doctrines of salvation, and we spoke in greater depth about these things during that class. If you'd like, you can watch those on our website. If you go to resources, and then video, and then equip classes, there are handouts, PDFs, everything there. And if you're not joining us on Sunday morning yet, during that 9.15 equipping hour, join us this coming Sunday morning, 9.15 over in the Education Center. Ryan Fields is going through the Minor Prophets. We'll be starting a new 10-week class on the church history, different turning points of church history. I and others will be teaching that class. Make plans to be there for that. Doctrine matters. Equipping matters. We'll see you next Sunday. Back to our text. Semi-Pelagianism is actually closer to the Roman Catholic view of original sin. And unfortunately, it's kind of the default way of thinking about humanity for evangelicals. But it's really not much better than Pelagianism. We, though, are surrounded by optimistic messages about the potential of humanity, aren't we? Uh, certainly more than we did in the 1600s. By and large, original sin is rejected as, as an old, pessimistic doctrine from the past. And if we could just quit our negative thinking about ourselves, we could reach our potential and turn this world around. 
we drink in a very low view of sin and a very high estimation of human nature. It surrounds us. So I know this verse and the concept that it teaches may be shocking to you. It may be uncomfortable. But we need to look closely at this text and embrace it as, as truth and to let it shape our understanding. So these two understandings of original sin are off the table for us. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. Again, I just want to suggest, as I've said earlier, that Adam's sin is, in some sense, the sin of all mankind. And as a result, human nature is infected by the corruption of that sin. So Adam's sin is the originating sin of our original sin, to put it that way. That's how we got our sinful condition. That's plain in this passage in Romans 5. Look, if you've got your Bible there in front of you, please look at it. Romans 5, look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Look at verse 16. It says, the judgment following Adam's trespass brought condemnation. Look at verse 17. Because of Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Look at verse 18. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Even verse 19 says, By Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And we could also add to this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, which says that in Adam all die. Okay, so it seems plain that our sin, our corruption, and, and death and condemnation is traced to a historical person named Adam, the first Adam, the first man. So we know this much to be true. How? Well, this is less clear. So we need to have humility here. We could say that God views Adam as a federal head of the race, a head of the human race as a representative, and by virtue of his sin, that sin is imputed to us. We could say that we share in that one same fallen nature that Adam brought into the world through his sin. But what does seem clear is that everyone enters into the world with a corrupted nature. Because you really have to try pretty hard to pretend this is not true. If you have children, you'll know that jealousy and pride and deception and stubbornness come up pretty early on, about as early as possible. And it hasn't because they've learned it from society. Do we think that's because society taught us to be stubborn? Honestly, no. It's because we act in accordance with our sinful nature. The doctrine of original sin teaches that people sin because we are sinners by nature. And we're also sinners by nature and by our own choice. This is what our statement of faith says at Trinity Bible Church. We're sinners by nature and by choice. The doctrine of original sin teaches that people sin because we're sinners by nature. That sin puts us, though, under a moral debt. That sin puts us under a moral debt, and it's a debt that rests on us because of Adam. Now, I hope that you'll agree that humans are conceived and born not as saints, but as sinners. This is David's confession in Psalm 51. Because we're either born in sin or we're born sinless. Those are the options. There is no third category. There is no neutral ground provided for us. We are either in Adam by natural birth and therefore stand under condemnation or we are in Christ by rebirth 
That's spiritual birth, regeneration, and therefore justified and reconciled. This is what chapter 5, verse 18 says, the next verse after our passage this morning. Okay, so the doctrine of original sin should humble us. It should be a very humbling thing. Unfortunately, our natural response is to fight against it. How could God put us in this predicament through Adam without my permission? If I was there, I just would have not eaten the fruit. It's not that hard. I don't eat apples all the time. Come on, Adam. But God chose Adam to be the head of a human race. And if you think that you would have done better than Adam, or that you would have done better than God by picking a better representative, you're just wrong. Original sin means that we shouldn't always push the blame for our own sin onto society or even onto Satan. We can't blame the world or the devil for all of our troubles and woes. We have to take responsibility. We carry around that same root of the cause of any number of horrible evils that we find in the world. We carry in that same root cause in our own nature. And if God's grace didn't restrain us, our flesh would be capable of any number of those same sort of horrors and sins. There is no room for pride in Christianity. Let's humble ourselves, take a true accounting of our nature and the depth of our need of God's grace. If you're not convinced of the reality of original sin, Paul goes on, though, to give a pretty clear evidence for how we know that it's real. B, original sin is proved by the universality of death. Original sin is proved by the universality of death. One way to know that original sin is a reality is the manifestation of death itself. Death was Adam's sentence as the punishment for his sin. We read about this in Genesis 2. So death presupposes sin as its cause. You tracking with me? Now remember, Pelagius, that, that British monk, he taught that Adam was going to physically die whether or not he ever sinned. That death is just part of human nature, with, with or without a fall. It was always our destiny to die. That's how he could sort of reject, one of the ways he was trying to reject this doctrine of original sin. But it's entirely inconsistent with what we find in the Bible. Remember, Adam was created without sin. He was given a command from God not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he was warned very explicitly and clearly that in the day he eats it, he would surely die. He disobeyed. He transgressed that law of God, in that sense. And as a result, death entered into the world. This is what Romans 5 is telling us. So Paul is going to explain this even further in in Romans 6. As he continues his argument, he'll say very explicitly that the wages of sin is death. These two things are intricately connected. Remember, throughout this letter, Paul is interesting. and He's he's trying to bring together these two groups of people in this church in Rome. The Jews and the Gentiles. He's, he's been very clear that they're all in that same predicament of sin, and there's only one solution for both groups, for all of humanity, which is the gospel of God. The Jews, though, on the one hand, they had an explicit law of God that was given to them. It was revealed to them by God himself. Do you guys know the Ten Commandments? 
So on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and he, sees, he, he receives a very explicit law from God. God says, this is what you should do. It's very similar to the explicit command that Adam received from God, right? Just like Adam, Moses was given clear instruction to guide the concept and to guide the character of his people, Israel. But even before the law was given on Mount Sinai, in between those two, in between Adam and Moses, death reigned. And it wasn't because people disobeyed God's law. It wasn't even given yet. Sin couldn't be properly accounted for or or recognized as sin without the law. And yet, the result of sin, which is death, still reigned. Now, how is that true? Because in Adam's fall, we sinned all. We fall in solidarity with that one man, Adam. Now, what is this death that Adam brought into the world? Well, it might help to think of it as the removal of the blessing of life that Adam and Eve would have enjoyed in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Had they not disobeyed, they would have continued to enjoy physical life, natural life. There there would be no physical corruption or decay. They would have enjoyed spiritual life. They would have continued in unbroken communion with their creator God. Beyond that, though, that life would have been eternal. So it would have been eternal life. It would not have ended or been met with condemnation and judgment. So we could say that the death of Adam brought into the world, it includes some sort of physical death, it includes spiritual death, and it includes eternal death. That seems to be what verse 14 has in mind. There's there's that physical death, but it also includes spiritual death. Verse 16 and 18 sort of tie the death of Adam together with condemnation. So spiritual death there. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We read elsewhere in Ephesians. And unless we get out from underneath that condemnation of the sin which came into the world through that one man, all we have to anticipate is eternal death. But this is not so for the Christian. I was helped in reading through our brother Toby Jennings' book that touches on these topics called Precious Enemy. In it, he notes that Paul teaches that believers must still experience physical death, as we know. But believers have been rescued from spiritual death through their union with Christ. So there is an eternal death and condemnation awaiting those who remain in Adam. So if you don't think of yourself as a born-again Christian, you probably don't even need the Bible to point out to you that you, you have a sinful nature. Maybe you didn't know what it was called. Maybe now you have a category for it. But perhaps you are starting to have some level of self-recognition. Maybe this is sinking in for you a little bit. I hope that this message hits you clearly this morning. Your unease with the state of your soul is not simply like a psychological phenomenon. It's not a psychological defect. It's not something that you can go to a class and get counseled out of. Your guilt is real before a God who is there. This is not a game. Run to Jesus and take hold of him by faith so that you can flee from the wrath that is to come. But for the Christian, it is not death to die. Toby says this, quote, The transition of death for the the believer is merely one final test of his unshakable faith that God will keep his promise to that believer, that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. 
the faithfully dying Christian acknowledges that this life, which is inseparably united with Christ, is not terminating, it's only transitioning. Jesus tasted death to secure the gift of righteousness, which he freely gives to us. He absorbed the wrath of God in the stead of ruined sinners and took on the eternal death that is ours. So even as the Christian faces the the certainty of death, unless Christ returns first, we do not need to fear. So dear brothers and sisters, fix your eyes once again and again on the eternal promises of God. He has set eternal joys before us. When he calls us home, there will be rejoicing. Though sin entered into the world through that one man, Adam, something much greater entered into the world through that second and better Adam, Jesus. The true and better Adam brings life. Point two. Verses 14 through 17, let me read it for us. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, picking up on the the end of the verse just before this, but the free gift is not like that of the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundant grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Notice, very important here, picking up in the the end of the verse just before this, that Paul says Adam was a type of one who is to come. That is Jesus. So Adam is a type of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, a type is a person, object, or event in the Old Testament that anticipates the person and work of Jesus in the New Testament. You've got a type, which acts as sort of like a sign, which is pointing to something beyond itself. So the type is foreshadowing something true and greater to come later, which is, which is Christ. So the point, uh, the point is that in the Old Testament, we have a type which points forward to an anti-type, which is the the fulfillment of the promises of that type. In this particular instance, Adam is the type. Jesus is the anti-type to whom Adam points. Think about this, just the concept of typology in general. God has planted in Scripture people, objects, or events. He has preordained them. He has prearranged them in history so that when we get to the New Testament, we would see Jesus as the fulfillment of the entire Bible. All of it points to Christ. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament is littered with references to the Old Testament. It's because God is a master storyteller. He preordains, he preloads history with all sorts of signs that all point to Christ. So that when he arrives on the scene at the right time, he can be seen for who he is. as the very culmination, the very focus, the very apex of the revelation of God. So how then, how was Adam a type of Christ? Well, they're similar in some ways, and they're different in other ways. This is the point of a type. Paul goes on to compare and contrast them with each other in the verses that follow, even into 18 and and following. But we note that Adam and Jesus are similar because they're the two most important humans ever. 
They both stand at the head of a people. Only Adam and Eve and Jesus had what we often mean when we talk about free will. That is to say that they had the ability to not sin. This is true only of Adam, Eve, and Jesus. They came into this world with the ability to not sin. They're both similar and unique in that. But their actions and their consequences of those actions are actually polar opposites. Adam stands at the head of a fallen humanity. Jesus stands at the head of a redeemed humanity. Adam stood at the beginning of creation. Jesus stands at the beginning of the new creation. The first Adam disobeyed the law of God and brought death upon all of his fallen humanity. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, fulfilled the law of God in every way and brought eternal life upon all of his redeemed humanity. Similar, and yet very importantly different. Adam's one act brought judgment, condemnation, the reign of death came into the world through Adam, but Christ's one act of atonement brought about at the cross brought grace and justification, the free gift of righteousness and eternal life. This is what we find in our passage. Did you notice, too, the repetition of the phrase free gift? Free gift comes up a lot in there. It's repeated five times just in these four verses. And Paul explains what this free gift is earlier in his letter. In, in chapter 3, verse 24, he says, this gift is to be received by faith. It's justification. This free gift is reconciliation to God. It's justification by faith. And if we keep following Paul's argument beyond our passage today, we'll, we'll see in, in chapter 6, verse 23, he explains what the result of that free gift is. Justification. The result of that is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you read free gift in this passage, think of restored communion with God and eternal life. Adam's influence on humanity is sort of like the family tradition of sin. We can speak in that way. We have all fallen into ruin and misery by the sin of our first parents. And if we remain in Adam, we stand condemned already. And we will receive God's justice. But Jesus' contribution to humanity is so much greater than Adam's. And this is Paul's point. Our own many actual personal sins should bring about the spiritual death. Our many trespasses should bring about the spiritual death and condemnation that we have earned as the wages of our sin and our actions. But Jesus' free gift follows many of our trespasses and brings about eternal life and justification. So if we are, if we are in Christ, we don't get what we earned. This is the very definition of grace and mercy. We get God's mercy as opposed to his justice, but nobody receives injustice. And as our creator, it is God's prerogative to give us either. God shows his mercy by withdrawing and saving some out of the fallen race of Adam without any consideration of their works. This is a free gift. Salvation. These are the only two streams of humanity. Notice how much the word one is repeated in this passage as well. It comes up again and again. There is unity, either in Adam or in Christ. And we can reject God as our ruler. We can live our own way. We can face death and judgment like our father Adam. Or we could submit to God as our ruler. We can rely on Christ's precious blood. We can receive mercy instead of justice. We can receive life that begins when we are born again and never ends. 
Which will it be? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, you can be delivered from the family tradition of sin and adopted into God's family as a son of God, a co-heir with Jesus and all that belongs to him. Now, you might kick against the idea that you were not in the Garden of Eden, and yet you've been caught in the gravity of Adam's sin, as it were. But the truth is that you too have sinned by your own choice. But do you see how much greater the gift of God's grace is? You weren't, sure, you weren't in the garden, but you weren't on the cross either. Indeed, there's no way that you possibly could have fully paid the debt that we incurred by our sin from an eternal and holy God. Though you have done nothing to earn it, in Christ you were declared to be righteous. So we are either dead in Adam or alive in Christ. So if you're a Christian, united by faith with Christ, we are encouraged to make every effort to strive against that fallen nature, which Paul will all too clearly talk about how closely it still clings to us, and he hates it. We are instructed to put away that flesh. We don't like original sin. We don't like it. To act less like that first Adam, to act more like the second Adam by the power of the Holy Spirit, more like what we will be when we see him as he is. But if you're here as a non-Christian, two ways have been laid out very clearly from you, uh, from the text before you. Two ways. If you feel stirred to run to Jesus, talk to God right now where you sit. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask him to change you. Submit to his lordship. Trust in his finished work. If you've not done that before, and that's something that strikes you in this moment, embrace it. Come talk to me when the service closes. I'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be in your house with your people, to be encouraged by how much greater your grace is than our sin. Father, we pray even now as we sing this last song, celebrating your mercy, that we would feel that in a very tangible way. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured into our hearts, that we would feel the redemption that you've given to us. Help us sense the joy of our salvation. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to humble ourselves. We want to promote holiness in the body. Help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.